Our text for today comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise, likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have any authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have any authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were, as, were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain uh, even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Do you see how she looked at me when she said burn with passion? <laughs> it's real, people. It's real. Sorry. That's super inappropriate, actually. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Today we're continuing our series entitled I Can Relate, uh, where, where we have been looking at different types of relationships that we encounter in life as followers of Jesus and as human beings living on the earth. And we've been exploring uh, the previous two weeks, we talked about two different relationships. The first week, we talked about friendship, which I think is really paradigmatic for us. I think that that through line of friendship really makes all of the rest of these messages make sense. And then the uh, last week we talked about marriage. And this week we are talk probably talking about the most confusing, sometimes awkward, occasionally lonely, and just plain palm-sweating-inducing aspect of human life, which is singleness and dating, right? Now, this particular facet of human relationships is far more pressing and important in our day than it has probably been in any other day in human history. And that sounds like a grand statement, but I think it's actually true. If you just take the numbers from our day and you, you go back just a couple of years, you realize that the situation has changed drastically. In the 1950s, the average age for a person's first marriage was 22 and a half for a man and 20 just about 20 for a woman. Today, that stands at 29.8, so basically 30 years old, and basically 28 years old for a woman. So eight or nine years have been added to that average age. And more and more Americans are single now rather than married. In the last census taken in 2010, and there's another census coming this year, so the data will change pretty quickly here in the next year or so. Whoa, did we lose me? There we go. Uh, 51% of uh, grown adult Americans were married, which if you see the, if you reverse that, you realize that 49% of adult Americans were unmarried in the 2010 census. You compare that with the 1960s where 72% of adult Americans were married and things have shifted pretty quickly just in a, in a couple of decades there. And this was just in the last century, how quickly these things have changed. You look further back into history, and things change even more drastically than just that. And we will look at that in just a moment. But what these numbers show us is that more people are single for a longer period of time than it really in any other time in human history. Most Americans today go from childhood to adolescence 
and then enter a kind of protracted period of adult singleness. This is normal, right? That lasts sometimes, for some of us, nearly a decade. That's a big chunk of our lives. And because of the high rates of divorce in America, uh, more and more middle-aged people are trying to navigate this kind of interesting space of being in that age and being single as well. And so while we could kind of think of it as a, as a phenomenon that happens with people between the ages of like 18 and 30, the, the truth of the matter is, is that this issue of singleness and dating applies across the spectrum of ages, doesn't it? There's no one age to which it is any more pertinent today, just based on the cultural situation that we live in. And culture continues to kind of radically shift under our feet, I think. We, uh, and I think, in a culture where ideas around what it means to be married, what it means to be in a relationship are shifting, I think we need to find, as a community, as, as a church, some kind of solid ground, some basis upon which we can have a constructive conversation about how, we, how it is we actually go about living in a world where this is a reality where people ha do have protracted periods of singleness or where people enter singleness in, a late, uh, in later age. And how do we navigate all of the ins and outs of what is complicated, right? It's just complicated. And then, so what a Christian would normally do is take that and they would take it to the scriptures and they would say, okay, scriptures, tell me how it is that I'm supposed to navigate this space. But if you've read the Bible recently, you know that there's a little bit of a problem there. And that is that the Bible was written 2,000 years ago before dating even existed, right? <laughs> it was not even a concept in the minds of the people who wrote the scriptures. They didn't have an idea about it. In fact, in, in Jesus' day, in the, first, in the first century, specifically in, within the frame of cultural Judaism, protracted singleness was not just bad. It was not something that just didn't happen. It was something that was considered bad. Every single healthy adult, normal life person was expected to be married. Every single one of them. I was reading this week for, for this message, and I ran across a saying by a rabbi from the time who said this, He who is 20 years old and not yet married spends all of his days in sin. No, no we don't cheer for that. <laughs> now, this perspective to it seems strange to us, doesn't it? In our kind of highly individualized culture, but... In traditional cultures that were less individualistic, less, less, uh, more uh, collectivist or co uh, communal, this is a common way of thinking, actually. Because in those cultures, the point of life is not personal self-fulfillment like it is in our culture. The point of life is to be a productive member of a collective or a family or a tribe. And still today, in much of the world, this is the way that people think about life. They think about themselves not as rugged individuals making their way through the world, making their own choices, but rather they see themselves as a part of a collective, part of a group, part of a tribe. And they see their primary um, allegiance to be to that group of people. And in those collectivist societies, it makes sense that your primary responsibility as a member of a community is to work for the benefit of that community. And thus... People's gots to, get, gots to get married and gots to have kids, right? Because how else is this thing going to keep going? But 
here's the problem, right? Marriage doesn't, uh, marriage and dating don't look like they looked in the first century. We don't live in a collectivist society. We live in a highly, highly individualist society where the, where the primary thing that I am working towards is not the benefit of other people around me. It is for my benefit and my happiness. And thus, in the Western world, we see these issues of marriage and singleness and dating all through the lens of my individual self. And yet the Bible sees, uh, the culture of the Bible tended to see things through the lens of the community through the lens of, of the, the well-being or the benefit of the community. And so when we look at the Bible, when we look to the Bible for insights into how to navigate this kind of interesting space, what we run into are some interesting questions. As I said earlier, dating did not exist in the, in the scriptures. It, it did not exist in the first century. It was not even in the, it is, was not even in the frame of reference of the writers of the Bible. But they did have a way of going about getting married. They did have a way of going about getting married. And the best way to show you this is to just take a little excerpt from the scripture, specifically the way that Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, ended up together. This is, uh, when we first are introduced to Mary and Joseph in the scriptures, we are told that they are betrothed to each other, which is a great word. But that word doesn't make much sense to us because we don't do betrothals. But basically, just a snapshot of what was going on here is that Mary was most likely between the ages of 12 and 14, and Joseph was probably between the ages of 16 and 18. Now, Mary and Joseph didn't meet in history class. They didn't strike up a friendship on the tennis court, right? This isn't how they did. Joseph did not take Mary out to Thai food on their first date, which just for the record, if you have a first date, Thai food, it's a litmus test. If the person doesn't like Thai food, they're not the one, (laughs) right? All right. At least that's for me. Anyways. What, what probably happened with Mary and Joseph is that in this little Jewish community where their families lived, their parents got together and decided for them that they were going to get married. The primary factors that went into deciding whether or not they were going to get married had very little or almost nothing to do with romantic love. This didn't really factor into the equation. Mary and Joseph were probably given the ability to say no if they felt strongly about it. But most of the time, couples in these arranged marriage situations just kind of went along with the flow. They went along with the wishes of their family, which made complete sense for them. This was not a butterflies-in-your-stomach type of dating uh, relationship. Personal fulfillment and emotional love were things in the Bible. They existed. I'm not trying to say that people didn't feel love. We see romantic love expressed beautifully in places like the Song of Songs. But what is often seen as the most important, but it was not often seen as the most important thing about why two people got married. The most important thing, again, was continuing the family, strengthening the community, having kids. If you think back to last week's uh, talk where we, where we looked at the, the commandment of God to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, Jewish people took this commandment quite seriously. Personal fulfillment was just way lower on the priority list. So after an agreement that was reached between the parents of Mary and Joseph, what probably happened is they exchanged resources. So Mary was probably given a dowry that that was her money to be kept in case Joseph died so that she could be taken care of. And Joseph's family or Joseph himself probably exchanged some type of resource back to Mary's family, whether that was cattle, I don't know what it was, but there was some type of resource exchange. 
And after the resource exchange, once the couple had reached an appropriate age, they entered this period of time that the Bible refers to as a betrothal. And this is the time. This is the this is the time that the Bible tells us that Mary was first approached by the angel and told that she was going to be pregnant with Jesus. Now, this time usually lasted around a year, and during this time, the couple didn't even get to really see one another, so that's fun. It was considered a time of preparation for marriage, but it was also considered a serious thing. So serious, in fact, that if you called off a betrothal, you actually needed a kind of certificate of divorce from the rabbi in your community. So then after this time of betrothal, everything was ready. The groom would get, would get up. He would go. He would get his bride. They would have a ceremony. They would uh, consummate their relationship physically, and then they would have a big party for, that lasted like seven days, which is a big wedding reception. This is what singleness was like in ancient Judaism. <laughs> a little different, right? So in ancient Judaism, singleness was bad, almost sinful, and dating, as we understand it, was not a thing, Right? And so how do we use the scriptures to help us navigate aspects of human life that on the surface they don't even really address? How do we, how do we use the scriptures? How do, we, how do we kind of mine them for wisdom when on the surface of them we, we don't know how to navigate it, how to do it? How can this ancient book apply to our lives today? Which is kind of always the question <laughs> that we're bumping up into with the Bible. How does this ancient book apply to us today? But the truth of the matter is, is that I think our teaching text for today is highly applicable for us. Not because Paul speaks directly to our situation, the situation that uh, many are navigating in our world today, but because he speaks about the core, the essence of what these things are. And we can apply that wisdom, in a sense, to our own lives. We can kind of look at the Look at the core, the essence of what Paul describes, and we can use that as a kind of lens through which we can see the rest of our lives. This is, again, what Bible interpretation is all about. And so what I think we'll find as we look at this passage is both startling to us and also a bit challenging. For those who are called to marriage, I think there is some wisdom here if you are if you're trying to make your way towards God uh, towards marriage as a single person. I think there's some wisdom that we can mine here. And if you're a single person who might not feel called to marriage, I think there's some incredible hope actually held out in this passage for you. So let's hop in, right? Let's hop in. How's that sound? If you have your Bibles, I would suggest you open them uh, to 1 Corinthians 7. This, the, the whole chapter will give you good context. If, you're, if you just reached for your phone, I would encourage you to grab a Bible underneath the chair in front of you because it will be helpful. One, and two, I just like the sound of paper pages turning. It's just something I enjoy. All right? All right. So a minute ago, I showed you how the culture of the first century within which these scriptures were written understood singleness. But what is so fascinating to me when we read this passage of scripture is that when we look at the lives of early Christians in the New Testament, what we, find, what we find out is that these Christian people were the very first religious people, as far as we know, in the history of the world who held up singleness as a viable, even good way of living, which is crazy and completely countercultural to the environment that they were living in. And we begin to see this uh, more and more. Specifically, we see, it, we see it begin in the New Testament with the life of Jesus, 
Jesus was not married, which for his day and age was a very countercultural thing to do. It was one of the most radical things Jesus did in the eyes of the people who came into contact with him. All Jewish rabbis were expected to be married. It was not an option for them. And now we don't know what, what situation kind of led to his singleness, but we know he chose that position in life as a good one. And in the later New Testament, particularly in the writings of Paul, remaining unmarried is not just an acceptable thing, but it actually becomes something that Paul encourages. It's something that he encourages. The Apostle Paul says of himself in this passage that he is not married. Now, many scholars believe that Paul was probably widowed, that his wife had probably died at some point, uh, particularly because when he talks about widows, he kind of lumps himself in with that, or widowers or widows, he lumps himself in with that group of people in this passage, and they think, so maybe that's what would have gone on. And it would have made sense, because Paul was a good Jewish man before he converted to Christ, and he would have seen marriage as a, as a cultural value, something that he needed to do. But Paul, in this teaching text, seems to emphasize singleness, not, uh, not just as a state that we need to kind of accept and begrudgingly endure, but rather a state that is actually good, an elevated state that, can, that, is, that is good for the human soul. Now, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is actually a really dense chapter of Scripture. There's a lot going on. And Paul is having the back half of a conversation with the Corinthian church because they, as you see from the very first, uh, from the very first uh, sentence in this chapter, had written him a letter, right? And he is responding to some questions that they had asked him, which... Now, we don't have the letter that they wrote him, and so we're kind of piecing together this two-way conversation that they were having as though we were just had one end of the telephone conversation, right? But, but by paying attention to what Paul says, we can, kind of piece, we can kind of piece together what was happening in Corinth and why he felt the need to address this issue, both of marriage and singleness, in the way he does. Uh, what appears to be happening, and Paul addresses this in the first half of our teaching text for today— is that married people in Corinth were choosing to stop living as married couples. They were choosing to stop being intimate with one another. They, they, were, they were ceasing marital relations, basically. And, uh, and they believed, mistakenly, that this in some way made them more holy people. Now, we don't know all that was happening in Corinth, all of the kind of cultural context that caused them to believe this, but this is pretty clear what was happening. And Paul's words to these married people is clear as well. He says, married people shouldn't act like they're single people. Married people should act like married people. They should not cut off physical intimacy with their spouse. They should not hope that they were or wish that they were in some other state. Rather, they should be married. They should act married. They should enjoy their marriages. And Paul is really clear about this. And the way he says it is fascinating. He says that... Uh, Wives, your bodies belong to your husbands, which everybody in that, in that cultural context under, understood and believed. And then he reverses it and says, Why, uh, husbands, your bodies belong to your wives, which is a literal monumental leap forward in the history of women's rights in the earth. No one had articulated anything close to this at this time, but we don't have time to talk about it, so we're going to keep it moving. 
So after he finishes talking about marriage, he starts talking to single people. He starts addressing them specifically. In, in, in particular, he begins to talk directly to unmarried people and widows. And what he tells them, uh, coming from a guy who was a Jewish Pharisee, is really groundbreaking. Beginning in verse 7, he says this, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one for this manner and another for that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What he says here is that if you are unmarried or widowed, it would be great if you were able to stay that way. Which is interesting, right? Remember, people did not live long at this time. And when he says widow or widower, he is not referring to somebody that we think of as older because their spouse died of old age. What he's actually talking to is people who might have been in their 20s at the time, right? Still in childbearing age. And what Paul says here is totally new, both in the Greek and in the Jewish cultural context. Because again, he, was, he is writing to a collectivist culture, a culture that sees their value to society as being, uh, as being to further or to help their family, their tribe, their people. And in, a, in a, this type of collectivist culture, it was not good for somebody to not have kids. In fact, in many of these cultures, they saw unmarried people, even unmarried widows, uh, as, um, as hurting as hurting society, as hurtful for culture. So much so that the emperor Tiberius, he's the emperor, he's the Caesar who followed Caesar Augustus. Uh, Tiberius was the, was the emperor during the bulk of Jesus's life in ministry. But Tiberius passed a law that said anyone whose spouse died needed to be remarried within two years of that person's death. Because they believed that uh, to have a bunch of single people running around was not a good thing for society. And yet it is into this context that we see Paul teaching that choosing a celibate, single life is a good thing, a great thing even in Paul's mind. And he encourages singles to stay the way they are so that they could give themselves fully to the work of the kingdom. This is what Paul says, right? So that they could work full time in building God's kingdom, in building the church. And, and here's the thing that I think is interesting. While these people, by choosing singleness, did not have, did, shut themselves off from the possibility of having biological children, they were able to have spiritual children as they invited new people into the family of God. And these people who chose singleness were enabled to choose singleness in the history of the church a single life that glorified God because the church was such a close-knit family. And they didn't feel that they were lacking anything by choosing to not get married and to not have kids. And this is where I think the early church has something to say to our time about this issue. In the early church, there were numerous people who chose this type of life, lifelong celibate singleness dedicated to the purposes of God. And we find a tension with that in American Christianity, don't we? Because if we're being honest, the culture that you have maybe experienced in churches growing up, if you grew up in church, is a little bit more like Jewish culture 
than it is like the type of culture that Paul argues for here. Honestly, most evangelical churches in our day think that if you choose to be single for God's sake or for the kingdom of God, you have to go be Catholic or something, right? That if you make that decision, we kind of ship you off to a castle on a mountain to be by yourself. I don't know. Because we, see, we, we tend to see singleness as a kind of deficit, don't we? That, that it's a deficit in a person. But in the early church, celibate people who chose singleness for the sake of the mission and message of Jesus were a normal part of the church. They were around all the time. They did not live in a monastery. They lived normal Christian lives together with the church. And I think part of the reason we don't see this a lot in our day in the American church And the reason we maybe struggle with this is that we struggle to form the kind of deep, interconnected networks of support and care for single people that would allow them to continue in that state, yet still have the rich relationships that are required to live a full life. Does this make sense? And what this has tended to lead to for most people is that single people in the church feel a little out of place. They feel a little out of place. They don't feel like maybe everything that happens in the church is geared towards them or is for them in any specific way. But in the, but in the early church, this was normal. They saw themselves as a family. They were a close-knit group of people. They met in each other's homes. They broke bread together daily. And the community was so robust that a person could choose singleness because they still had the care and support of other human beings that they needed to, f- to live a significant life. And in our day, single people are just, well, they're pitied, right? A little bit. Oh, you poor thing. Uh, Ashley and I uh, dated, some of you know our story, but my wife Ashley and I dated in high, in high school and college. Uh, and I broke up with her in college. And I remember walking into my grandma's house, and my grandma knew Ashley and Ashley's family growing up. And she said, Nick, what happened? What happened? And I said, I don't know, Grandma. It just, it just didn't work out. And she said, Nick, Ashley is a nice girl. <laughs> She's a nice girl. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I know. But we made it work. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> but what I felt from my grandmother at that moment was probably a little bit about of how I feel like some Christian people in the church feel. Some single Christian people feel in the church like they maybe are a little pity that they don't feel the level of support that maybe they need to feel. And to be honest with you, uh, I, I think the church needs, especially the evangelical church in America, needs to grow in this way. As we become a more tight-knit community, as we become a people of faith that live together, that break bread together, that support one another, we become the type of community that could support people who actually made this choice. But because, in general... The, the church in America is not that type of thing. We tend to see our nuclear families as the most important thing, and the church is kind of this thing that we add on occasionally. We've created a space where it makes it very hard for people who might even feel called to this type of life to make that decision because they don't know if there's ever going to be a community of people that would come around them and support them. And so the call, I think the challenge for us as a church, if you're in this place and you're a married person, is to create that type of community. How do we create that type of community, that close-knit community that together can be a kind of family within which single people feel like they can flourish? 
They feel like they can be loved. They feel like they can have a family, even though they feel this call to maybe not take up marriage. They don't feel called to the vocation, as it were, of marriage, and yet they feel called to give their their time fully over to the kingdom of God. If we don't have a tight-knit community of of friends, of, of family that is the church, it becomes very difficult for people to make that decision. And so for the married people in the room, I think that's the primary challenge that, that we can receive from this passage today. This isn't what the New Testament church was like. And as a, as a modern-day American community of faith, I think it is very good for us to strive to be a community like that as well. So, that is for you. But when we talk about singleness or choosing singleness as a vocation dedicated to the kingdom of God, of furthering his mission in the world, it can be, for, mo- for many of us in the room, if you're single in the room, you're kind of going, yeah, that's great. <laughs> but I don't know if that applies to me, right? I, don't, I have a desire to be in a relationship, and yet it feels like it's just not happening. Maybe for some of you, you're getting to the point where you're like, that arranged marriage thing sounds nice. Like, let's make that happen. I said this morning, yes, that's what we're doing today. Uh, If you're single, go sign up. We're going to get it taken care of. Uh, No. Basically, what I want to say is that while the Bible holds out choosing lifelong celibate singleness as, as a great way to further the kingdom of God, many of us in our culture are not in that place. We're not actually choosing that. We feel that the culture is kind of on top of us and that we have been unable in some real sense to step into the type of relationship we want. And other people in our culture uh, who are around us are intentionally delaying marriage in favor of, I don't know, career advancement or holding out for some romantic idealism that will complete them in some sense. And they believe that they can kind of get the benefits of marriage without actually being in a marriage. And if we're being honest with ourselves, most people in our culture are having trouble navigating that space, right? That's the, that's the space that we have trouble navigating. And so what does this passage of scripture say to that group of people? Probably the majority of people in this room who are single. How does it help you, as a person who might desire to be married, navigate that space of being single yet having that desire? And I think it helps us do this. First and foremost, Paul helps us do this in this passage by deconstructing the American myth of romantic fulfillment. Did you think I was going to say that when you showed up today? In America, we worship love, don't we? There was a band that I listened to a lot in college. They were called The Format. Uh, the, one of the opening lines to one of the songs is like, for me, it always sums up the American view of, marriage, or of love. He, he says, I love love. I love being in love. I don't care what it does to me, <laughs> right? And I think that pretty much sums up America's obsession with romantic love. We're coming up on a time of year that some call Christmas and other call the Hallmark movie season of the year. And what all of those movies have in common is that while there are like hats and scarves and occasionally like presents being exchanged, what those movies are really about is how love will save us all, right? That's what those movies are really about. Those movies are about romantic love and holding it up as a kind of idol that will save us. Our culture communicates to us in a myriad of ways that romantic relationships are totally fulfilling. Totally and completely fulfilling. And if you are not fulfilled in your life, the problem is that you are missing out on a romantic relationship. 
romantic relationships are the point of life, right? Love is everything. But the scriptures seem to be, and Paul in this passage seems to kind of not believe that. He doesn't say that is the highest or best form of love. And he would most certainly say, not say that romantic love can save us in any significant way. From Paul's perspective in this passage, romantic love does not complete us. It is an aspect of life. It is a really good aspect of life that can and should be enjoyed, but it is not an ultimate thing. And, you, and we see this all the time from single uh, or unmarried people who give into this idea that love is this thing that is kind of meant to be worshipped. And when it is worshipped in this way, it gets us all screwy, doesn't it? Instead, Paul, Paul encourages, uh, Paul's encouragement in this passage sounds kind of unromantic to us. It really does. And we don't actually like it very much because he seems to be kind of lowering the value of romantic love and marriage. This is what he says. Um, he says, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that manner, right? So he's kind of saying, yeah, you can get married or not if it's your gift, whatever, man. So if your gift is marriage, do that. If your gift is singleness, do that. And then he takes another swipe at married people. And if you're married in the room, you're kind of like, that's not, not very nice. In verse 9, he says, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. But it is better to marry than to burn with passion, so go for it, Right? This is it. Paul, is this all you have to say to us about the value and the beauty of marriage? Like, is this all it is? It's just like I'm a kind of, I'm not able to control myself, and so I, you. <laughs> now, I will admit, Paul's teaching here feels really, uh, really stark. And we do have to balance Paul's teaching in this passage in 1 Corinthians with a kind of higher view of marriage that he teaches in Ephesians 5. So like everything in the scriptures, different teachings have to balance one another, and we also have to let scripture interpret scripture in a sense. And so in Ephesians 5, Paul gives a more exalted picture of marriage. It's the type of picture that when we get married, we're like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And then you read this, and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. But what Paul is doing here for us, I think, is reframing for us modern Christians our ideas about romanticism. That, that for people in America, we need to hear. You know, one of the first things I ask married couples when they come into my office for marriage counseling is, why do you want to get married? It's the first question I ask. Most of those couples think that's a test. It's not a test. But I do think it's a good thing to have thought through before you sit down in front of a pastor for marriage counseling uh, or for premarital counseling. And a lot of couples say, because we're in love with each other which is a perfectly good answer. I, I enjoy it when I hear that answer. It's a fine answer to the question. But if a couple came in to me and said, and I asked them, why do you want to get married? And they said, do you know what? We just honor and respect one another as friends. And we both feel this kind of inward call to be married. And so we want to get married. Do you know what I would say to that? That's a great answer. It's a great answer. And I would have actually no fear that within that type of relationship, mu that mutual love and respect would yield a kind of deep romantic bond as they walked through life together, right? It would. It naturally would. And I think this is a far better reason. <laughs> this is kind of strange. I think this is a far better reason to get married than if a couple, than if a couple are just entering into a relationship because they believe that romantic love is going to complete them or fix all their problems. 
right? You can, you can be quiet if you want. It's cool. <laughs> if you are looking to another flawed human person to save you, it's not going to go well. It really won't. And so if we can hear Paul's teaching as a corrective to our cultural worship of romantic love, I think we do well this morning. But, but what Paul says here is also, I think, a corrective to one of the most destructive aspects of dating culture in American life. And if I'm being honest, it's what we've all been waiting for this morning, right? We want to get right down to brass tacks. What about sex, right? What do we do with that? If we're going to be honest, one of the primary reasons singles in uh, our country prolong marriage to such an extent is because they feel free to have sex with people whenever they want. Right? Kind of. And the real question many of us are asking is in this prolonged singleness, this span of time that, many, that most Americans live where they are not married to anyone or they're not in a relationship, Basically, we're asking, how do I not have sex with people, right? If, especially if you come at this thing from the perspective, from a Christian perspective that says there are guardrails to this thing and you're not supposed to have sex with somebody you're not supposed to, that you're not married to. So how do we go about doing that, right? What help can Paul be for us in that? How do I not feed my desire for sexual gratification or fulfill that need through the use of pornography or some other thing and yet still grow as a person and be ready for marriage? And how do I get married, not just as a means to stop burning with passion, but rather out of a sense of deep fulfillment and calling? You know, Paul's words to us might, some of us could read this passage and say that Paul's antidote to the fact that some people inwardly burn is simply to marry the first person you see, right? Which I, which, makes sense within the context of the passage, but I think when you look at the larger scope of Christian teachings on sexuality is not actually the point of what Paul is saying here. While some people might think that that is good advice, I don't think it's actually our best option. Because if you have not learned self-control in your life around this issue of sex and sexuality, getting married won't solve that problem. It won't. Paul seems to think that sexual drive is a powerful thing, and it's something that should be respected, right? It's something that should be respected and channeled within the context of Christian marriage. But it is not an all-powerful thing. Because Paul, in his very own life, seemed to have the ability to curtail the power of sexual desire, right? Paul seems to believe that a sex drive can be focused and controlled, which is a novel idea in our culture, isn't it? Where we're told that we're just supposed to express ourselves in however our bodies want to express ourselves, and that any time we shut off the, our kind of free expression, we're somehow limiting or hurting ourselves. Yet Paul says, and really ancient wisdom from both the scriptures and from sources like Greek philosophy have always said that to be a fully formed person, to be a person of character in the world is to learn to curtail your desires, is to learn to kind of focus them and narrow them and master them in such a way as that you, you learn to control yourself. To be a self-controlled person is an ideal. 
And singleness, no matter how long it lasts for any of us, is an opportunity, is the opportunity actually, to learn how to master this aspect of our being. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be run I don't want to run around being a person whether I am married or unmarried who is just ravenously controlled by this desire that is totally just like out of bounds all the time. If we don't learn to manage this desire within the context of our singleness, it will run amuck in our marriages. Ask anybody who's been married for more than a year and they will tell you, right? That being being married, having somebody that you can express yourself with physically like that, doesn't solve the problems. It just doesn't. And so unless you're in a situation in your singleness, unless you're working on this problem as a single person, you're never going to curtail it within the context of marriage. You might, but it makes it much harder. Marriage is not the place that you go for safety in this regard. It is a place where that, where that desire is properly channeled, but just entering into that relationship doesn't solve the problem. And so my encouragement for those of us who are single in the room is this is a beautiful opportunity for you. No matter how long your singleness lasts, and I would say uh, I, was a, I, I didn't get married until I was 27, all right? So I lived a big part of my early adulthood as a single man. It's possible. It's possible to curtail these desires in such a way as that when you do get married, you can express yourself sexually in healthy, God-honoring ways. It is possible. We don't always do it perfectly, right? And, and many of us have a track record that we might feel guilty about in this moment here today. But what I want to say to you is that y- you can move forward and begin that process of curtailing those desires in such a way is that you can flourish in your life in this regard. It is not impossible. It is quite possible. And if we are able in, our, in those years of singleness to learn to control ourselves in this way, control ourselves isn't even the right word, if we learn to properly focus ourselves in this way, God is honored by it. And it's a good thing. And when we do step into marriage, we have this, pro- the, our, our loves are properly ordered, our desires are properly ordered, and we're then in that space able to give ourselves fully to our spouse. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. We're running out of time here, so I'm just going to fly through the last few. I just have a couple of guidelines for people who are single, who feel called, but who still feel called to marriage, right? So this is just the rapid fire part of our message for today. So first, build multiple deep friendships. In the scriptures, unmarried men and women are called to treat each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Have you ever met that guy or that girl who is incapable of having a friend of the opposite sex? You know what we call those people, right? Creeps. We call them creeps. If you don't know how to have a genuine friendship with a person of the opposite sex, you might be a creep, all right? So, so figure that out. Seriously, learn to treat people with respect and be friends to one another, right? Friendship is the key here. Uh, keep it moving. Uh, number two, know that marriage will not fill the void that is in your soul. It won't. If you have a void there, it will continue to exist once you're married. And so if you're looking to marriage to do that, it, it won't work. And we've kind of talked about that, so we'll keep it moving. If you are single in this place, if you're in this state of singleness, whether you feel called to marriage or not, do more ministry. Do more work. 
for the kingdom of God. Paul makes quite clear that the primary reason to choose singleness is to work for God's kingdom, to be, to be an agent of restoration and renewal in the world, and, and to have a little bit more t- free time in or, with which to do that. If you're married in this room, you know, and if you have a family, you know the, the, the kind of constraints that that puts on your time. I was watching a message that uh, another pastor preached on uh, this particular topic this week, and he had written a lot of books. And he said to the audience, do you know why I didn't write any books until I was 50? He said, because I had a family and I couldn't, didn't have time to write books, right? This happens to be true. If you're single, use that time wisely. I think all of those of us who are in this room who are married can look back at our single days and see areas of our lives in which we just didn't leverage our singleness for the kingdom of God. We didn't leverage that time to better ourselves. We leveraged that time to do other things like watch TV, right? And we look back on that time and uh, I don't know, if you're married and you have kids, how often do you look at your spouse and go, what did we do before we had kids? What do we do with all this time? I don't know. And I was like, I should have written a book. Seriously, I could have gotten one book in before I was 27, and I could get like three after I turned 50. It would have been great, but I didn't, and I regret it. All right, so that's number three. Number four, know that our culture, uh, uh, our culture is telling, not seeking, but is telling lies about personal satisfaction and sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. Simply don't believe it. We do not have to constrain ourselves to the, to, the, to the pattern of culture in this regard around dating and singleness in order to live fulfilled lives. It's a lie. It's a lie. And if you're in this place today and you find yourself believing that lie from time to time because it's just the water you swim in, which I understand, we all kind of swim in it, just know that it's a lie. It's not true. That, that there is a flourishing life within the confines, within the constructs of God's good world that we can live into. And in that place is a flourishing life. It is not a small thing. It is not about just doing the right thing so that God doesn't get mad at us. It is about living a flourishing life in the rhythms of God's grace, in line with the created order of the universe. This is what it means. And when we and when we kind of when we when we grasp for a kind of cheap um, substitute, when we grasp for this cheap substitute that culture offers us, what will happen inevitably is that we will begin to live below the poverty line of the life that God has for us. But when we can um, aspirationally reach up to the call of God in this regard, that we can be, begin to live in line with the call of God as it uh, as as He would lay it out for those of us who are single. It can become a beautiful thing, and we can flourish under the hand of a loving God who calls us to a flourishing life. That's what we can do. All right? Now I'm very much out of time, so let's pray, shall we? Will you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, we love you, and we thank you for the wisdom of your scriptures. We thank you that you have not left us alone in, this, uh, in these interesting modern times where, we're, uh, where we have to kind of figure stuff out, God. We thank you that you've given us the scriptures, that you've given us your wisdom to navigate this space. And I pray specifically this morning for the, for the single people in the room, God, for the single people in the room that feel inherently that tension in their own hearts about how do I go about being a single person in the world? How do I, how do I date in a healthy way? How do I... Um, 
am I, do I feel a call to be a single person for a celibate single person for the rest of my life? I pray for those people in this place today, God, that you would place your hand upon them, that they would feel your your spirit and your call on their life, God, that they would be surrounded by people in their community that would help them to live lives that honor you and that you would give them vision for their future in such a way as they could walk towards it with clarity and with purpose. God, uh, you want to build us into a church of interconnected relationships where we can support one another in this endeavor. And so I pray that we would all uh, learn to rely a little bit more on our communities in order, our, our community, our, our interconnected network of friends, of Christian friends, to walk out this road together. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.